I want to start off with this week's Parsha with a poem. <laughs> the Lies We Tell. This is addressed to myself. The lies we tell, the stories we sell to keep this love alive. Truth betrays what we say in order to survive. What emotions shed are easily misread when blind eyes open. How we pretend time spent keeps souls unbroken. If I really love you as I say I do, goodbye should be said. But no, I'll cajole and make you a fool and anchor you here instead. I'd like to come back to that at the end uh, of our talk. Pasha's Matos talks about oaths and vows. Vows and oaths, neder and shvur, are both considered weighty matters in Jewish thought. Breaking either is explicitly forbidden by the Bible in our Pasha, chapter 30, uh, verse 3. Ish ki yidor a man makes a vow to the Lord, oh, he shava shvua, or he takes an oath. Well, what's the difference between a neder and a shvua is the subject of our discussion. Le'esor isa al nafsho, in order to impose an obligation or a restriction on himself, lo yachel dvoro, he shall not break, break his pledge. He must carry out kechol hayotse This is the prohibition on swearing falsely, which is one of the Ten Commandments, and an entire tractate on the Talmud. The difference between an oath and a vow is somewhat technical. The violation of both vows and oaths is considered a serious infraction. There are examples in the Bible of individuals taking vows, but the rabbinic period, the practice became frowned upon. The Talmud states that the punishment for breaking a vow is the death of one's children. The Shulchan Aruch explicitly warns people not to regularly make vows and states that someone who does, even if they fulfill the vow, is called wicked and a sinner. And so many observant Jews have the practice of saying, Blineda, I'm going to do it, I'll do it, yes, yes, Blineda, without a vow, whenever they promise to do something, to make it explicit that they're not making a vow. Given the seriousness of oaths and vows and the fact that Jews during some periods of history were compelled to make declarations of fealty to other religions, the rabbis developed formulas for the disillusion of vows. The best known is, of course, in advance of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the, uh, the heter that we say. Now, Vows and oaths are obligations created by words. They are commitments to do something or refrain from doing something. Let's go back to that posuk. Ish ki yidor nader, a vow or a nader, affects the status of an object. I may vow not to eat something. That something is now, for me, forbidden food. Oh, shi shavuah 
the oath or shabua affects the person, not the object. What is now forbidden is not the food, but the act of eating. Hefza and gavra, as the briskers would say. Now, both acts bind me. That's the primary meaning of the word isa. Le'esor isa is to bind me in this act, which now becomes a speech act. Such is the sanctity of such undertakings that there are demanding rules that have to be met if this is to be annulled. You can't do it by yourself. And the Pasha sets out some of the ground rules, the rest of which were supplied uh, by the oral tradition. In fact, the Mishnah has two separate tractates in two separate Mishnaic orders which deal with these laws. Nadorim is the order of Nashim, and Shavuot is the order of Nazikim. Let's just get a little bit more technical. Forgive me. A Shavua is an oral statement that invokes the name of God and focuses on the Gavra, on the person making the statement. They may take a positive or negative form and may refer to the past or the future. For example, in a Shavua, a man says, I swear I will do such and such, or I swear I will not do such and such. Similarly, I swear I did do such and such, or I swear I did not do such and such. In addition, in the course of civil litigation, a Jewish court may impose two more types of shavuot. One type of shavuot is imposed upon a litigant in order to substantiate the veracity of his argument, just the way we have in civil courts in America. And the other type of shavuot is imposed on potential witnesses who are subpoenaed by the court, but claim they have nothing to testify. All of Ishwat must be fulfilled or must refer to something that is already true. There is also an illegal type of Shavua outlawed by the third of the Ten Commandments. That commandment forbids one from taking God's name in vain and refers to four types of vain oaths. Swearing about something which is patently false. I swear that this marble column is gold. Swearing about something which is blatantly obvious. I swear that the heavens are the heavens. And other examples of reflexive redundancies. Swearing to violate the laws of the Torah. I swear I shall not wear tefillin. And finally, swearing to do something impossible. I swear I will refrain from sleeping for three full days. So that is the whole heading of Shavuah. A nader, however, is a verbal declaration which creates a halachic status shift and focuses on an object instead of the person making the declaration. Example, a nader can be used to create a prohibition from deriving benefit from another thing or person or from eating a particular foodstuff. The mechanics of a nader essentially renders the object of one's verbal declaration into a quasi-consecrated property, therefore making it forbidden. In other words, a nader mimics the process for making an object into hectish, holy property of the temple. This type of nader is called konam. Now, I looked up konam. If I can share with you my good friend... <laughs> My good friend Jastro. What is a Konam? A Konam is 
which is a balderized form of the word korban, relates this idea of rendering an object of one's verbal declaration into quasi-consecrated properly, like a korban. So if one makes a nader that he will not smoke, he has essentially said, I promise that the benefits deriving from cigarette smoking shall be forbidden to me, just like the use of a consecrated animal is forbidden. Indeed, when one promises donate a sacrifice or other component to the holy temple, that pledge is also called a nader. So you can see how Jastra calls it a substitute for a carbon used for a vow of abstinence and for the consecration of an object. Okay, hitherto we have discussed the definitions and the differences halachically uh, between a shvua and a nader. In short, a nader and a shvua refer, in summary, to oral pronouncements that have legal standing in the Torah, but the points of their foci are on different aspects. The nader focuses on a specific object, rendering forbidden the object and benefits thereof. And the shvua focuses on the party pronouncing the oral declaration, obligating him to do or not do a specific action. Now, I bring this as a background because vows and oaths and I started by saying the little lies we speak, the poem about the little lies we tell ourselves and our spouses. The vows and oaths are obligations created by words. And the Torah creates a, a kind of legal framework for doing what you say, saying what you mean, meaning what you say, the way Sassur in the 20th century defined a speech act. It's not just verbal, but it's a speech act that carries legal consequence and philosophical consequences. So they are obligations, but they're obligations created by words, not actions. They are commitments to do something or refrain from doing something. Such is the sanctity of such undertakings that they are demanding rules that have to be met if they're to be annulled. You can't do it on your own. Now, the Sfat Emes, in a piercing insight, takes this one step further. He says, it is not only vows that bind us, and not only vows that create certain realities. It is all speech. The Sfat Emes now has taken this halachic legal notion of vows and nader and shvua, and he is now applying it to all human speech. The speech that we use every day. Speech doesn't reflect our perception of the world. It creates the world in which we live. Stunning insight of the Sfasemis. He shall do all that has emerged from his lips, as we read in that posuk, is not a command or an exhortation. It's a fact of reality. In fact, our words shape the world we inhabit, and the world shapes our actions and our decisions. Consider three people. A person who regularly says, Baruch Hashem, everything is Baruch Hashem, or Im Hashem, or Baruch Hashem, or thank God, and one who never mentions God altogether. We tend to think that these differences reflect different worldviews. That's how we think, you know, he's a from me, he's not. Which is true enough. At the same time, though, 
These three are also, through their words, creating three different worlds for themselves. This is the Chiddush. In a way, the Sfas Emes's point is one that was made long ago by the Sefer Achinuch. We don't know the author who wrote the Sefer Achinuch, Medieval. And he writes, our hearts are drawn after our actions, which is a more poetic version of fake it till you make it. The Sfas Emet's insight is that this not only applies to actions, but applies to words, not just how we act. And it does so in an even more powerful way that the words do not just shape our character. They shape our world. The power of words as world shapers can be seen in the opening chapters of Bereshis. Adam's first act is the act of speech, as we learned yesterday in the Morinaim. God brings before Adam every animal for him to name. And our rabbis tell us that Adam was able to identify their essence and therefore knew their names. That's interesting because that's taxonomy. He's a good biologist. He's a taxonomist. However, the Sfas Emes would have us say the opposite. By choosing their names, Adam was completing the creative act of the divine. Less than what God had done in God's creation of the world, Adam's creation was not a physical one. That had already been done by God. But it was a world-shaping one. He was creating a conceptual map of reality that organized and that defined his world through the speech act through the taxonomizing. This is a cow, this is a cat, this is a dog. Our worlds create worlds and these worlds shape our actions. It is our responsibility to choose individually and collectively our words and our discourse. This starts with giving serious thought as to what is really what we want to strive to create when we do create and when we speak, not only in actions, but in words. Very nice. Now, the exciting issue of vows raises many questions. The Torah itself does not clearly state its position on vows. According to the Torah, is a vow desirable or not? The Torah formulates the law in terms. If a man makes a vow, that's what we learned in our Pasuk. That's Bidiyeved. That's after the fact. He's made a vow. If a man already makes a vow, okay, he's got to follow what he has to say. Does that imply? that there is no mitzvah to take a vow, and that we're dealing here with a, an admonition directed at one who has already taken a vow and that he shouldn't break it? Or is it being alluded here that a person is encouraged to take a vow? And so I want to present to you another Hasidic Rebbe, the Koshnitzer Magid. And I want to share with you the most stunning insight that he has on Pasha's Matos. And this is on Pasha's Matos in the Koshnitzer Magid. I'm indebted, actually, who brought this to my attention was Rav Itamar Eldar from Yeshiva Hartzion, because I never would have found this myself. Although I do go through the Avodah Sisrol every week. I love the Koshnitzer Magid. So the, 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 the distinction between a Neda and a Shvur, which we went through in halachic terms, now gets a spiritual inflection. What does this mean spiritually? If a man takes a vow to the Lord and swears an oath, so he says, this, 
this 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 technical law about speech acts actually refers to someone who is walking the spiritual path and so what does he do to walk in the spiritual path he makes bookends as they say in recovery he's careful uh, to make Siogim, a siog is a fence, a parapet on the top of a roof. Siogim is a fence on a dorim, and he takes vows upon himself. Why? In order that he should become a throne and a chariot to his maker. A throne and a chariot in Hasidus means that my life becomes a vessel or a vehicle for the divine manifestation in this world. And in order to do that, I have to makadish myself, not just say, I'm not going to do an Avera and I'm just going to keep the mitzvahs. But in that in-between space called Klipas Noga, in that in-between gray area where I can enjoy myself and I can do everything because it's allowed, halachically allowed, Spiritually, it may be dubious. So I create these fences and nadarim, these vows to myself, in order that I can sanctify my life and keep away from stuff that may be allowed but not spiritually beneficial. He withdraws and withholds and swears and uh, se- uh, separates himself from a number of different things. What does that mean? As he go, and he's parsing the verse, right? Neder Lashem, Lashem, meaning he does this that his body, his being, can be a kind of dira, an apartment for his creator, right? Tanchuma in Noso says, dira God didn't just want to stay upstairs in the Shemaim. He wanted an apartment down here, a dira betachtonim. That's what he's talking about here. Therefore, according to his intent and his speech act, by doing all these acts that bookend his behavior. He therefore is able to arouse above by his making himself into a vessel for the hashra'at hashchina, the devolvement of the divine, hashra'at hashchina on his being. I, I call it incarnation the incarnation of the divine by making himself a vessel. And so it says in Sifri that anyone who takes a vow, it's it's as if he was It's as if he was taking an oath on the life of the king. It wasn't just on himself. It's a beautiful rendition by the Hasidic master of the Sifri. The Sifri obviously means that don't take that oath lightly. It's like you took an oath by the by Her Majesty the Queen. I'm telling you I'm going to do this, right? But he says, no, he's taking this, not the Melech, the local king, but the Melech Malchi Amlochim. What is he doing through these thoughts? He's actually, listen to the words he says, 
He's shaking the life of the king. He's shaking him, namely his thoughts, as it were, meaning he is shaking the thoughts of the king. Now, what does that mean? A neder, according to the Magid of Koshnitz, constitutes in this first section of neder an abstention from certain things or actions. He erects for himself fences and vows that he vows and separates himself from various things. So a person decides to abstain and purify himself by distancing himself from those things that, according to his outlook and understanding, distance him from God and establish a barrier between him and the Shekhinah. So a vow, according to the Koshnitz Magid, consists of abstention and erecting fences that prevent a person against his will. Even if at certain moments he doesn't identify with that abstention, it prevents a person from coming into contact with those things that, according to his understanding, distance him from the Creator. Now let's look at what he says about an oath. The Pasuk says, oh, what would that mean? And again, we're not talking halachic now. We're talking spiritually. Ah, he brings us a pun, a pun. The word shavua comes from the word sheva, the seven days of creation. So what is he doing here? Remember, halachically, we had said one goes on the chefsa and one goes on the gavra. One is object-related and one is person-related. We've completely left that whole halachic zone of differentiation of speech acts. Here it is now, the shvua is something to do with seven. Oh, the seven days of creation. Why? Why? Absolutely dazzling statement that he is doing it to strengthen the validity of the seven days of creation during which the world had been created. Remember, we talked about Odomar Rishon who named the animals. That was the Kiyom of the Olam. He takes this one step further. It wasn't that he was just settling the world into a new creation map, a kind of map of creation. Here he's saying he's actually strengthening lechazek tokef vekiyum. He strengthens with a force and the establishment of creation itself. Ki kol kavanoso leso isal nafsho. Because this whole idea his entire intention in binding his soul with a bond, meaning making the statement, I will not allow myself to partake of this and this, is what? That his soul should be tied and bound to God. Therefore, <laughs> see what he's done with the Sifri. It's not that he's in invoking the authority of the kingdom. I'm invoking the authority of Malchus in my, in my abstention. No, I am Nishbahu Bamelech Atzmo. I am swearing by the king himself 
Through the, the, the oath, he actually is connecting to the king himself. And what is happening on that? According to the Kojnitz Magid, the oath is an obligation to perform certain actions, which, according to his outlook and understanding, draw him closer to his creator. He swears to do such and such. And the difference between a vow and an oath that emerges from the Magid corresponds to the fundamental and well-known distinction between Surmeira Vasetov. An oath, according to the Kozhnitzer, is an aspect of turning away from evil. It doesn't involve any positive action. It's, an, it's, it's entirely an abstention from a negative action, from coming into contact with things that defile and distance a person from God. An oath, on the other hand, is the aspect of doing good. It directs a person towards and obligates him to engage in certain acts. The person is active and operative, and he anchors his will to do an act with an oath that obligates him to remain faithful to that, even if at certain moments it passes and is no more. He strengthens his distinction in accordance to what it says in the Sifri. A person takes a vow spares by the life of the king, whereas a person who takes an oath swears by the king himself. It would seem that we are dealing here with a distinction regarding the formulation of the vow and the oath. But the Magid, however, tries to deepen this so-called halachic distinction and widen it. His understanding is clarified by the description of the respective results of the neder and the shvur, the vow and the oath. The vow brings a person to become a throne and a chariot to creator. But the oath brings a person to the state that his soul is tied and bound to the creator. There's a difference between being a chariot and being completely bound. To be a throne and a chariot means to be a vessel. Such a person neither acts or creates. He merely waits to receive and listen. The throne and the chariot are meaningless as long as the seat is empty. They're like an empty container with nothing in it. They're ready and prepared for the king to sit down on it. When a person becomes a throne and a chariot, he invites the creator to sit on it. In other words, of the Magad of Koshnitz, he stirs up the world of thought above, the machshavos, as it were. He shakes the gods machshavos so that he might then take an act and come and sit on the chariot. But to swear by the life of the king means to shake the life and thoughts of the king. He wakes up and invites the king and says, I'm waiting for you. In contrast, the oath to the seven days of creation, it is from the oath that creation receives its strength and vitality. It is by way of an oath that a person swears by the king of the world to do and to act. Here, we're not dealing with any kind of abstention of a sur meira, but we're doing a tov by revalidation of actions. When a person acts because of an oath, he validates the seven days of creation, and thereby his soul is tied and bound to God. Why? What's the difference between an ordinary decision to do something and a decision that is accompanied by an oath to God? That is the question. What is the difference? Now, according to Chazal in Kabbalah and Hasidut, and I will end with that thought, 
human will is regarded as the innermost and loftiest aspect of man. When a true desire to serve the Rabboni Shalom and draw near to him awakens in a person, we are dealing with a deep internal awakening that breaks through the material lavush, the covering, the garments in which a person's soul is wrapped. This hisarusa, this spiritual awakening, is indicative of a penetration deep into the depths of a person, and it is from there that it operates. Taking a vow or an oath not only ensures the realization of such a desire, but it also furthers and deepens and elevates that desire. That's the punchline of the Koshnitz of Magid. And Rav Nachman says, when we deal with man's desire to serve God, Rav Nachman is the master in describing the anatomy of the soul and the anatomy of that desire. And he asks, whose desire are we talking about? Are we dealing with individual desire and personal interests? otherwise known in, in Hasidus as Peneus, I have ulterior motives, something that's driving me to do it? Or are we dealing with the appearance of God's will in my soul? It's a big distinction. It's a difference between Chabad and Breslov. What's going on when I desire? For Chabad, I have to go into a state of bittel, which means I have to nullify my desire for the desire of the Rabboni Shalom working through me. I'm channeling him through me in Bittel. For Rav Nachman, we cannot allow ourselves those luxuries. I am stuck in my ego. I'm stuck in the blotter. I'm always aware of my pneus and my desires. Rav Nachman teaches us that when I wish to perform a certain spiritual avoider, then it is I who has the desire. Even though we're talking about a good desire and a positive desire, we're still talking about my human desire. It's me. It's my ego. From the moment that I attach a vow or an oath to that desire, an additional partner enters into it. That's the Chiddush of Rav Nachman, that an additional partner enters into the picture of my desire, and that's the Rebona Shalom. And I think that we can take home from this very halachic treatise, and I'm sorry for burdening you with it, but I needed to compare and contrast here an intensely halachic issue which takes up two mesechters of shas about the outer limits and the borders and the characterizations and the legal implications of the speech act and the distinctions between a... a, 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 a Nader and a Shvur, which is very murky in our posuk, that our proof text, and compare that to the way the Hasidic masters ran with that and used that as a, a tool in Avodah Hashem, which gets me back to my own, my own issues, my own speech, my own speech acts, and the people I betrayed in my life the people I have lied to in my life, I'm fooled to in my, in my need to get ahead and my need for credentials and my need for approval from those wounds of childhood. And so I'm going to leave you once again with that beautiful anonymous poem, The Lies We Tell, Stories We Sell, To Keep This Love Alive. Truth betrays what we say in order to survive. 
What emotions shed are easily misread when blind eyes open. How we pretend time spent keeps souls unbroken. If I really love you, as I say I do, goodbye should be said. But no, I'll cajole and make you a fool and anchor you here instead. Have a wonderful, easy fast. We'll see you next in two weeks' time. Have an easy fast over a tissue bath.